The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Still, and I always get it confused in this service, start saying morning when it's actually afternoon. Well, this morning we're starting off a new series um, called Unbroken, and we're going to base it in 1 Peter. And so before we kind of launch in uh, to this morning, just a couple of things I want to just say. I encourage you, bring your Bibles. Um, I know many of you already do, but can I encourage you, particularly for this next series, make an effort to bring, if you have a paper Bible, you know, those old school Bibles, uh, you might have to dust it off a little bit. Bring them. And the reason is that we're just going to be diving into the text. Um, and there'll be things that God really speaks to you about, you know, that you might want to highlight or underline or key words that, you know, really stand out to you. You can make notes and stuff, uh, which you can't do on your phone. You can highlight. You can do that. So if, if that's what you want to use, that's fine too. But bring it because we're going to be going through the text um, and just being able to follow along uh, will be really, really helpful. The second thing I want to say about that is that you would have noticed if you get our weekly emails, and if you don't, it's because we don't have your email address. And so if you fill out, fill out a connection card, um, yeah, we can make sure you do get those. Um, we sent out the text for today, and I encourage you in the next eight, nine weeks, we're going to keep doing that in the weekly newsletter. We're going to let you know what the text is so you can come pre-read. And that usually comes out on Wednesday, which gives you about three, four days to actually read the passage over and over again in addition to your normal devotions just so you can be meditating and studying and reflecting on the passage before you get here on the Sunday. So when you come, you're already coming pre-read, you know, and God's been speaking to you already, and you'll just get more out of it if you just come already having read the passage. Um, so this week we're looking at 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12. Uh, next week we're looking at 13, uh, verse 13 to ch- chapter 2, verse 4, I think it is. But we'll send that out, uh, but just come having pre-read. So Unbroken. Um, the, the series title comes from a movie with the same name that some of you may have seen. Uh, it's a movie about a guy called Louis Zamperini, an Italian-American um, who uh, dis- he was a kind of a rebel as a kid. He apparently started smoking when he was five, drinking when he was eight, um, and got into all kinds of trouble until his brother challenged him to think about being on the track team, and he discovers he's got this incredible ability to run. And he was so good that he ended up representing America in the Berlin Olympics uh, and finished, I think, fifth. Um, But what was significant about his appearance at the Olympics was that his last lap was the fastest ever recorded. I think he ran it in 52 seconds, and it was 5,000 meters. So after running, you know, 4,600 meters, he ran the fastest last lap. And it was so impressive that it caught Adolf Hitler's attention, and he asked to meet um, Louis Zamperini, and, and so Zamperini got to actually meet Hitler. Um, he eventually ends up either being conscripted or enlisted, I'm not sure, in the U.S. Army, in, in, in the U.S. Air Force, actually, uh, to fight the Japanese in World War II. And as the story unfolds, um, he ends up, his plane crashes into the ocean between Hawaii and Japan, and the story is how him and his and two other uh, men with him survive, actually, out of the three, only two survive, and how they end up in a POW camp in, in Japan and how they're brutally tortured and, and uh, treated so terribly and how he remains strong uh, in the midst of that and, and resilient in the midst of intense suffering. 
uh, and how eventually he is returned home at the end of the war. What the movie doesn't actually talk about is the true life events that are recorded that after he came back, Louis Zambrini was a mess uh, with the trauma of the war and everything he experienced and he started drinking again and just, you know, his marriage was just falling apart. And then in 1952, he went to a Billy Graham crusade and he became a Christian and it just completely transformed his life. He gave up smoking and cigarettes pretty much straight away. God freed him from that, and uh, he restored his marriage, and just an incredible story of uh, this man not just physically coming home to his country, but coming back to God. Uh, And in in the movie, you see him actually praying at this one point, saying, God, if you will save me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. Um, a really fascinating story. And so we use that um, kind of title, Unbroken, to talk about the message of 1 Peter, that Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are experiencing suffering, and not, you know, because they were a prisoner of war, but because they were Christians. And so that's a big difference between the movie and what we're going to be looking at. These Christians were experiencing persecution because of their faith. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage them to build up their hope, to build up their resilience. And the thematic verse, if you like, that kind of summarizes the whole book is found in chapter 5. And I know Karen's preaching on this passage. I'm hoping not to steal too much of her thunder. But it is a a thematic, programmatic verse that relates to the whole book. So chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And that captures what Peter is trying to do in this letter. He wants to remind them that the God of all grace, the God that they serve, the God that they worship, has called them and has called them to something, and that is to an eternal glory. And in this passage we're looking at today, he'll talk about this eternal inheritance. But they've been called to the glory of Christ, and in the midst of their present suffering, God Himself will strengthen them and restore them and make them strong and firm and steadfast. That's what He wants from them. That as they read this letter, that they will be encouraged, they will be strengthened, so that they can stand firm and be unbroken in the face of persecution all the way to the end. So we're going to dive into chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And again, I'm assuming that you would have read this passage because you got the email on Wednesday instructing you to do that. So we're not going to read it, but we're just going to go through it. And so let me pray and we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come around your word. Lord, as we dive into this rich passage, I pray for your wisdom and your grace for me to communicate it clearly and and powerfully by the strength of your Spirit. And I pray you give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter launches off with an introduction, which is typical of a Greek letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, interestingly, Peter is making this claim that the words that he's writing are authoritative and binding on the church. He's naming himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, which was the office of those who were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And so he's saying, look, this stuff I'm saying to you is not just advice or good suggestions. It's binding. This is God's word to you. I'm writing as the apostle of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he does in this passage as he sets out on this mission of helping these Christians remain steadfast is to remind them of the foundation of their hope, the foundation of their their hope. Now, when we say hope, you know, we we have all kinds of different ideas about hope. And I want to show you a little clip from this movie, uh, Unbroken, that kind of brings out this point a little bit. So if we can show the video, please. 
So the reason Louis Zamperini says to his friend, I've got good news and bad news, is that when they first land in the, in the water, he's confident that they're going to be rescued. And he says, you know, talks about this hope that he has of being rescued. And for 45 days, they float around the ocean. And in that time, they get attacked by sharks. And there's a couple of times a plane actually flies overhead. One of them doesn't even see them. The other one actually sees them and comes back around. And it's a Japanese fighter plane. And it shoots at them and shoots at them while they're being attacked by sharks at the same time. So they jump out of the boat into the water, and there are sharks attacking them inside. They get back in the boat, and the plane comes around again to shoot them again. They jump. It's just crazy. And then, so they're, they're holding on to this hope of being rescued. And that's why he says when the Japanese ship arrives, I've got good news and bad news. We're, we're, we're being rescued, but we're being rescued by Japanese. And sometimes we can think of hope that way. There are things that we want. They're idealized things. This is wishy-washy idea of, man, I hope I pass my exams, even though I haven't really studied for them. I, I hope I get that job, though I'm not really, really qualified for it. You know, I hope I can buy that car, even though I haven't saved up any money for it. You know, we, we have this wishful thinking idea, and we kind of feel like it's not really going to happen. It, there's that underlying idea of hope that we kind of, I, I hope for something good, but I'm not really expecting it to happen. But for Peter, hope is something completely different. Hope is an entirely different concept and idea. And he's writing this letter, which is full of this theme of hope. And you'll see that as we go through this passage, he introduces a whole lot of ideas and themes that will run through the entire book. And as you read them and as we preach this series, it'll come up again and again and again. And one of those things is hope. And he begins our letter in this section by reminding them that there is a basis for this hope. There is a foundation for this hope. And he tells us this when he says, To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, and it goes on. He's writing to a whole bunch of Christians who lived in this region that is modern-day Turkey, and people have wondered how they came to be Christians. Some people think that they were the people who were there at Pentecost and had gone back to their regions, or there were other Christians that encountered the gospel somehow. We don't know. But they were, they were God's elect. That's the first thing he says to them, God's elect. Now, again, for, you, for some of us, that idea of predestination and election is a really difficult one to grapple with. I remember when I first started at PCC, um, people knew that I studied at SMBC and word got around and this guy came to visit us that wasn't even coming to our church and he'd done some work for us and he came to deliver it and he, I think, had come to PCC in the past or knew people that come to PCC. And so he said to me, oh, so you're the new pastor. He said, oh, I've heard about you. What's your position? Are you Calvinist or Arminian? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> hi, nice to meet you too. Um, and so I said, well, Actually, I'm, I'm neither. Now, those of you who don't know those expressions, Calvinism is the idea that God elects people, predestines people, and there's very little personal involvement in, people, in people's salvation, that it's all God and we don't really do anything. And then Arminianism, these are very simplified definitions. Arminianism has the opposite idea that our salvation and the world we live in and the life we have is primarily due to our choices. And God kind of is this disempowered, all-seeing, maybe all-knowing even, but not all-controlling being. And so I said to him, I said, well, I'm, I'm neither of those. I, I'm a biblicist. I preach what I see in the Bible, and I'll preach it as it is. And I'm not going to excuse it, and I'm not going to try and soft pedal it, and I'm not going to make excuses for it. It's the Word of God. And you can deal with what the Bible says, and I'll just tell you what it says. And he said, okay, I can live with that. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> haven't, haven't seen him in our church, but I don't know. 
Peter begins, the first, very first thing he says is, you're elected. And you're elected, as he goes on to say in verse, verse 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, some people say, oh, well, there's your way out. You know, people, were, you know, God didn't kind of just choose people. He knew who was going to choose him, and so he just cho- chose the people who were going to choose him anyway. But Peter's use of the Greek word foreknowledge here will not allow us to come to that conclusion. Because the word that he uses here implies a pre-existing covenant relationship. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of the future. It's a relational knowledge of love and affection. It's the same word that Peter uses in verse 20 when he's now talking about Jesus. Have a look. He was chosen. That's the same Greek word, foreknowledge. Chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Now, did God just know Jesus as the Son in an intellectual sense? Absolutely not. He foreknew Christ in a relational, Trinitarian, intimate sense. And Peter's saying that's the same way God knew and chose and elected you. Now, again, that's troubling. It raises a whole bunch of questions for us about how can this be? Peter is not answering any of those questions. Reason being, he's not explaining salvation to us. He's telling a bunch of Christians about a truth that's real, that they are in the community of faith. They are the people of God because of God's action. And that's really important because he knows that if we understand, and so he's writing to a whole bunch of people that were experiencing persecution, harassment, they didn't have any status or any worth or any dignity in the culture they were living. And he knows that if he can help these Christians understand who they are in God, that will give them the strength and conviction and power to withstand persecution. So he says, you're not nobody. You're not useless. You're not a mistake. The, the persecution and harassment you're experiencing, it, it matters because you're God's elect. There's a story told about Michael's great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. <laughs> Apparently, when she was a kid, she was a, a bit of a rotter. She was a, you know, a really naughty kid and got into trouble. And her teachers and her instructors were really frustrated with her and didn't know what to do with her. And they finally realized well, they were going to tell her one day that she was in line to be on the throne, that she was going to be the future queen of England. And they did. And the story goes that when they told her that, her response was, in that case, I will be good. Because somehow when she realized her dignity and status and the calling on her life, it reformed and changed the way she lived. That's a little bit what Peter is trying to do here by saying to them, God's elected you. So if you live in a society that disparages you and harasses you and slanders you, it doesn't matter because of who you are in Christ. But not only are you the elect, you're also exiles. And the word there, the way it's related is that elect actually qualifies exiles. So they are elected exiles. And it's the way Peter's writing about it is that it's God's very election that actually makes them exiles. So if God hadn't chosen them, they would fit in the world that they're living in. But now that God has kind of chosen them and elected them, they're misfits. They're travelers. They're pilgrims. They're sojourners. They're people without a home traveling through this world. Two things come out of that. One is that he wants them to realize that being a Christian means embracing the reality that we will not fit in this world, that we will always be on the margins of culture. And, you know, I was reading another book this week, and the writer said that the the whole thing about Christendom, which is the idea that the institutional church has had so much power in our culture, is the aberration. It's weird. 
Because right now, there's so many petitions and campaigns, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in this, about Christians trying to reform you know, morality in our nation and policy and government and all of that. It comes from this idea that our, our nation ought to be Christian. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Christians will always be on the margins of our culture because God has elected us. We are outcasts. We are fringe dwellers. We are the weirdos. And today we see that even in our own culture. To believe the things that we believe about the resurrection of Jesus is considered weird. To believe what we believe about sexuality and, and sexual morality is considered to be weird. We're called bigots. We're called intolerant. We're called arrogant because we don't fit in this culture. And Peter is saying, get used to it. The election of God is what makes you an exile. Which also means that this is not our home. And that's what he wants them to get, that they're on a journey. They're pilgrims who are heading somewhere. And so we will never feel comfortable here because we're, if you like, using Old Testament ideas, we're in the wilderness. And wilderness is tough. He says we're the scattered. This is another technical term, diaspora, which is the word that's used to describe what, what God did when he judged Israel and sent them to Babylon. And, and what happened under Rome, where they were scattered into the nations. And Peter is intentionally using these words that all come from Jewish history, from Israelite history. They were the elect, God said. They were the chosen ones. Deuteronomy talks about how God chose Israel, not because they were significant or worthy or powerful, but because he set his affection on them. And he brought them out. He rescued them. He delivered them. He set them free. He brings them into the wilderness. He makes them his people, and he promises an inheritance, and he takes them through the wilderness. Peter wants to call all of those ideas to mind, which is why he goes on to tell us the third thing is that their salvation was entirely the work of God, entirely the work of God. This is one of the only instances where all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in our salvation. Notice what Peter says. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with His blood. Sprinkled with His blood. Takes us back to Exodus 24 where Moses sprinkles the blood of the new covenant on the people making them now the people of God. What's Peter trying to do here? He's trying to say to them, remember Israel. Remember Israel. Remember what God did in Israel. Remember how he rescued them from Egypt. Remember how he elected them. Remember how in his judgment he exiled them. And then he restored them. He brought them back to the promised land with a new exodus through the wilderness both times. And he entirely was responsible for the saving work that he did. Just like that, you can be confident that the hope that you have rests on God's work. It rests on God's election and God's promise to save you and take you through the wilderness. And he says, that is the basis of your hope. And then he moves on in, from kind of verse 3 onwards to talk about the, the confidence and the assurance that we can have in our hope, the certainty of the hope that we have. So for Christians, hope is not a wishy-washy, wishful thinking, I hope in the, in, the, you know, in the distant future that something good will happen to me. No, Peter says the hope that Christians have is a certainty. And again, he gives us a bunch of reasons why that, why that is. He says, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
This is Peter's punchline. Peter is saying that our hope is based on a past event. Our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus. For Peter, this living hope that we have is Jesus, is the risen living Christ. And so he can say, because of the certainty of that event, your hope is certain. One Bible scholar, Edmund Clowney, funny name, but he says this, He says, our hope holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. That is profound. That's what Peter wants them to understand, that the certainty of their future that we can bring into the present to deal with our suffering now is so certain because it's anchored in a past, completed, finished work. That's why Peter can say that this salvation to come, this inheritance to come is guaranteed because the risen Christ has dealt with the sin problem. The risen Christ has dealt with the death problem. The risen Christ has destroyed Satan, disarmed the power of Satan and conquered in the cross. And because he rose again, the victory is already assured. It's guaranteed. It's done. A few years back, my family and I had the privilege of being in Canada and we were in Toronto and... One of the tourist attractions is visiting the CN Tower. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go there. Uh, it's like our center point tower. But one of the cool things about it is that they have a glass floor for part of it. Um, and there's this whole section that's just made of glass, and you can look straight down to the bottom. And that picture is the kids just jumping on that thing, sliding on that thing. Because kids, right, they have this faith and this confidence. And that's me trying to explain to Dash and her sister Rosh that it's completely safe And they can come on the glass, though they weren't so confident. And on the wall next to where we were standing, which is what I was reading out, um, is a whole bunch of statistical factual data by the architects and the engineers who built this thing on how safe it was. So our confidence was based on the historical data that was on that wall. And this is Rosh finally believing that it was true and kind of stepping out very gingerly. You can see from her face that she's still not very convinced. And Peter is saying the same thing. He says, look, the the assurance you have for your hope is based on the certainty of a past event. It's done. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is the centerpin of everything. If you take that away, then Christians are to be pitied because we have no hope because there is nothing else. Everything falls apart. But Paul says, but Christ did rise from the dead. He, he did resurrect. And because of that, everything else now comes into play because Jesus has risen from the dead. So there is assurance because of the past event. And then he goes on to say that this inheritance that we have is an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. And it will never perish, never spoil, or never fade. It's kept in heaven. The inference is that it's kept in heaven by God, by God himself. Can you imagine a safer person's hands to put your inheritance into than God himself? And in heaven. And again, Jesus said, why would we store up treasure here? Why wouldn't we store up treasure in heaven where no thief can break in, no rust can corrode? You know, it's completely safe and secure. And Peter uses different words here, which are also significant. He uses words, never perish, spoil, or fade. Again, he's borrowing a whole bunch of ideas from Old Testament theology. Because in Old Testament theology, the prophets use these words to describe the corruption and contamination that came into Israel's inheritance, the land of Israel. One example, Isaiah 24. Listen to what Isaiah said. 
because of God's judgment, he says, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. That's the same word that Peter is using here. One of the words. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. That's another one of the words that Peter uses here. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled. That's another one of the key words that Peter uses here. By its people, they have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Peter's point is, unlike that, unlike an inheritance that's here on this planet that can be affected by things, your inheritance is in heaven kept by God Himself, again, independent of your lack of faith, your struggle, your doubts, whatever it is, it's kept in heaven by God Himself, safe, secure, free from all of those things. The third reason, he says, that we can be confident and certain about our hope is that the same God who keeps our inheritance keeps us as well. He goes on to say that we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is God keeping your inheritance and my inheritance safe in heaven until we get there, He's also shielding us by His power, keeping us to make sure that we get there. How awesome is that? The best illustration I could think of of that is the movie Saving Private Ryan. They send this guy, uh, story again quickly, um, there's a whole bunch of brothers who are fighting in the war and All of them have died except for one. And the U.S. government doesn't want this family to suffer the loss of all of their kids. So they send this troop led by Tom Hanks' character, a bunch of guys who are willing to sign up for this crazy mission. And their mission, whatever the cost, to go into enemy territory, find this guy and bring him out safely. The whole mission was designed where these guys were putting their life on the line to make sure this one guy was safe. And there are so many scenes where all these enemies are firing and shooting at them. These guys are putting their bodies on the line to keep this guy safe. Peter is saying, that's what God does for you. That's what God does for you. He puts his body, as it were, on the line, not just to keep your inheritance safe, but to make sure that you get through hostile enemy territory to get safely home. Safely home. Peter, again, is using an idea from Old Testament. When he talks about shielded by God's power, He's thinking of the pillar of fire when God rescued Israel and brought them out and they're standing at the brink of the the sea. Egypt is behind them. You know the story how it says that the pillar of fire moved from in front of them and shielded them from behind. Peter's saying, God's got this. God's got you. That's why you can be secure in your inheritance. So Peter then, in, in reflecting on all of this, he begins to now unpack for them the implications of this hope. And he says there's got to be outcomes from this hope that affects your life here and now. You're experiencing suffering, you're experiencing hardship. So what does this eternal hope have to say and what what does it have to contribute to engaging with your culture, a culture that might be hostile, a culture that wants to push you to the margins and, and take away your dignity and your status? How do you engage with that culture? Well, the first thing he says in verse 6, as he reflects on, on this hope, he says, in all this, referring to what he's just said, the certainty of your hope, he says, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. That's the first response. He said, there's rejoicing. This is not Peter saying, look, pretend you're not going through a hard time. He's not dismissing the challenges. He's not saying, this is mind over matter, positive thinking. No. He's saying, we rejoice, not in the suffering, we rejoice in the hope that we have. 
we rejoice, although for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter has in mind here things like many of you would probably face in your workplace, in your school, in your university, being called names, being ignored, being marginalized, being considered a weirdo, being slandered, being harassed, being kind of discriminated against because of your convictions and your faith, because you're committed to Jesus, where people disregard and ignore you. That's what Peter's having in mind when he says all kinds of trials. And he says the reason we can rejoice is because we know that this stuff is only for now. And it's only for a little while, he says. As we read in 5.10, he says the same thing. Paul, when he's reflecting on this, he says the same thing. Our, Our light and momentary struggles are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. And a line in the movie brings this out. Lewis's brother, Peter, he says this to him at some point. He says, a moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. A moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. But Paul's statement is so much more profound because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is saying our light and momentary struggles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Not just in this life, not just a lifetime of glory, but an eternity of glory. And Peter's saying it's worth it. It's worth it because you can rejoice in that hope even if you're experiencing all kinds of trials now. Another reason people says, uh, Peter says that our hope should affect the way we live, he says, because it gives you a different perspective on trials. He says, these have come, verse 7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, may be refined by fire. Now again, this raises another thorny issue for us in the whole idea of God's part in suffering. A really difficult doctrine that, again, lots and lots of people have debated and wrestled and struggled with. What is God's role in suffering? Peter seems to be suggesting here, at least we can say, that persecution is somehow part of God's purpose and somehow God, part of God's plan, that God is the one that brings it. When he says, verse 6, you may have had to suffer. In, as we'll continue in 1 Peter, you'll see he says something like, if it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good. He seems to say over and over again that God is at work even in the persecution you're experiencing. Now, that challenges us. and Maybe we can't fully understand how that works. Peter's point again is to remind them that because God's in it, it's actually doing something in you. It's doing something in you. And the idea is that it's refining your faith. Because Peter told us earlier that it is through our faith that God shields us, verse 5. And so God is invested in building up that faith that preserves us, strengthening that faith, purifying that faith, refining that faith like gold in the fire. When a refiner works with gold, the only thing that's burnt up is all the combustible junk. It's never the gold. And that's what Peter is saying. Now, if you've traveled overseas and you've been to the developing parts of the world and you've talked to Christians who are experiencing really difficult suffering, you know what most people find? That their faith is so strong. And I've come back and others have come back saying, man, I wish I had faith like that. Well, look out. There's only one way to get that kind of faith. It's to go through the fire because it burns all the junk. It gets rid of all the rubbish. So be careful when you say, God, I want to have faith like my brothers in China. I want to have faith like my brothers in Africa, like those dear brothers and sisters in in Syria and Egypt that are being persecuted. God, I want to have faith like that. There's only one way. It's through the fire. And that's why Peter can say, 
that God brings that because he wants to refine it. And then the second thing that flows out of our trials is him saying that praise and glory and honor will be revealed. When Jesus is revealed, it may result, our faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. The question is, whose praise, glory, and honor? Is it ours or is it God's? And many Bible scholars believe that Peter primarily has God's glory in mind because the overall message of his book is how Christians ought to live in the world in such a way that even in the midst of persecution and hostility, they reflect Jesus and glorify God. But also others believe that given the immediate context that Peter is thinking of somehow us sharing in the glory of Christ, sharing in this eternal inheritance. And again, Paul brings this out very profoundly in Romans 8 when he says that, you know, when we suffer, we will, we will suffer and we will share in the glory that is to re- be revealed in us. This glory that, that we somehow participate in and get caught up in. And so our pure faith also brings glory and, and honor to us somehow in addition to God. And so Peter is saying that we can have a different perspective on suffering because of these things. The third thing he says is that we persevere. We persevere. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Our certain hope enables us to persevere. A few years back, when we were on a mission trip, we were in Sri Lanka. And we were speaking to this uh, pastor who was uh, leading a church. And we found out that um, a few years before that, her husband was, was killed. It was shot by the villagers right in front of her. And she's still there. She's still ministering to the very people who killed her husband. And yeah, you've heard many a story like that. And I asked her, I said, how do you do that? She said, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And I, I was reminded of that when I read this, when Peter says, I want to commend your faith. You're going through hard times, but you're hanging on to Jesus, even though you haven't seen him like I have. Even though you haven't experienced him firsthand like I have. But you're holding on to him because you're so sure of the hope that you have. It brings perseverance. And as Peter reflects on this, he brings us to the last point. Not only is our hope on a solid foundation, not only is there a certainty that comes to our hope, not only does our hope result in a changed life that engages in a hostile world, but he gives us a model for our suffering. And he says in verse 10, as he reflects on Jesus, concerning this salvation, he's talking about the salvation he's just mentioned, this inexpressible and glorious joy, and we're receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. He reflects on Jesus, and he says, look to Jesus. He's your model. He's your model for suffering. He says, the prophets, they, they didn't fully understand Jesus. The, the prophets, they talked about this Messiah, this king who was going to rule the earth and how the glory of God was going to fill the whole earth. And they talked about also this Messiah who was going to be suffering servant, like in Isaiah 53. And they're like, how do these two things work together? And Peter says, because that's Jesus. He's not just the king of glory. He's also the Christ of the cross. It's both. And, and like that, we embrace him because he suffered for us. His suffering opens the way and the door for us to receive our salvation, opens the way for us to enter into his glory. And that's why Paul can say in Romans um, 8, uh, 17, that when we identify with Christ, we will also share in his glory, share in his glory. And that's the second point Peter wants to leave us with. 
that our experience identifies with Christ. And he tells us in verse Verse 11, the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter is saying, like you, Jesus experienced suffering first and then glory that followed. And you too, your present suffering ought to stir you and inspire you to remember that glory will follow just like it followed Jesus. John 15, Jesus talked about how we would identify with him. He says this, if the world hates you, and this is one of those scriptures you want to kind of put up on your window or your door, remind you, powerful. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Jesus is saying what Peter is saying, but you don't. As it is, you do not belong to the world. You're pilgrims, you're exiles. But I have chosen you out of the world. It's the election of God that makes you a weirdo, that makes you an exile. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I don't see that posted on many church walls. Maybe it should be to remind us of who we are the elect exiles of God. And I love the fact that Jesus goes on in John 15 to remind them that the Spirit of God is still at work to convict people, and yet they have the responsibility to bear witness to Him as well. Because Peter says here in this section, the prophets, they didn't get it. They kind of got something, but they didn't really fully understand a glorified Messiah and a suffering servant. And, and he ends this section by saying the angels, they, they're kind of looking over the balconies of heaven trying to figure it out, and they don't get it. But Peter says, but you get it. You get it because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. You get it. And we get it. And so Peter reminds us, let us continue to do good. Let us continue to suffer for Christ because we get it because we understand the hope that we have, because we understand who we are in Christ, because we understand what Christ has done for us, because we understand that this hope ought to transform the way we live, because we get it. And so I want to encourage you as we launch into this series, maybe you're going through persecution, and maybe it's not being thrown in front of the lions and, you know, killed in the Colosseums. That's still to come. That persecution was still future, and that happened under Emperor Nero. And Peter is writing to this church to talk about present suffering, but also prepare them for the future. And we've had it great in the West, but it's not going to stay this way for long. So I want to encourage you, get into 1 Peter and remind yourself of who you are. And like Peter, let the assurance of your hope fill you with praise, fill you with deeper devotion for Christ, fully appreciate the revelation of the gospel that enables you to get it, and be committed to sharing that revelation with those around you so that people, when they see you experiencing suffering and persecution and being full of grace and compassion and love and power and strength and steadfastly remaining committed to Christ, will be blown in their mind as they understand that it's because of your deep devotion for Christ and your hope that is not just pie in the sky, sweet by and by, but it's a conviction that you know is true. Why don't you bow your heads? Close your eyes and just take a moment to reflect on your hope, my hope, our hope, and let it fill you 
with confidence as you go out, even this afternoon, maybe to work, maybe to a family that's hostile, that's intolerant, that doesn't understand, that doesn't get you, that thinks you're weird, that you're a misfit, that you're somehow strange, that you're an alien. And may the grace of God fill you and equip you to engage with them, to love them, to pray for them, and to live a life that will radiate Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit. Jesus. Father, this morning, this afternoon, I thank you for your presence, Lord. I thank you for the work of your Spirit in our lives. I thank you for revealing Jesus, for electing us. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us by the sprinkling of your blood, that you've sanctified us by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance of the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we know that there is an inheritance that you're keeping for us and that you will shield us by your power and strength as we keep entrusting ourselves to you. Grow us in our faith, Father. Purify our faith. May it be strong. That, Lord, as our world drifts further and further away from a Christian worldview and Christian morality, Lord, that we may remain steadfast. We may remain unbroken. We may remain strong in our commitment to Christ. Father, I pray that our hope will overflow from our life with great rejoicing, with a different perspective. Lord, with an attitude of grace and love for our neighbors, our workmates, our uni friends, our school friends who don't understand, who don't get it. But Lord, you've revealed it to us by your Spirit. And I pray that you would enable us to pray for our friends and relatives who don't know you and use our lives as we endure hardships of all kinds to reflect Jesus and to point them to our suffering Messiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. If you'd like prayer for anything this morning, if we can stand with you, if you're going through a hard time, whether it's at work because of persecution or you're sick or you're just having some other problems.